All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve, and uh, I'm the lead pastor. We are continuing our sermon series through the book of Acts. So grab your Bibles. Let's go to the book of Acts. We're going over to Acts chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chair around you. Uh, And in our Bibles, we're going over to page 927. 927. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't own one, uh, please take the one you just grabbed as our gift to you. We would love to put the Word of God into your hands so that you can continue to read it over the course of the week. All right, while you're flipping over there, kind of help set the stage. In John chapter 16, Jesus is having his last conversation with the disciples uh, before his, his being handed over to be crucified. And, uh, and it, over the course of this night, he says something to them that is incredible uh, and remarkable, and we don't believe him. Um, that's what it comes down to. <laughs> uh, he looks at his disciples, and he says to them, It is better for you if I go away, because if I go, I will send to you the helper, the comforter, the encourager, Greek word paraclete, the one who comes alongside to aid and encourage and strengthen. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, because I will send him to you. I'm guessing the disciples had a hard time believing him, Uh, not surprisingly, right? And honestly, I think we have a hard time. Um, Often I have had people uh, sit across from me and be like, man, I just wish Jesus was here. I mean, I got some questions. I got things to, I got, I would love to just ask. I would love to just, and yet Jesus is the very one who said, it is better for you if I leave because I will send you the Holy Spirit. Jesus obviously had a pretty high opinion of the power, the presence, the work of the Holy Spirit, and uh, often much higher than we do. Now, here's the thing with the Spirit, man. It's hard, right? It's hard. The Holy Spirit, I mean, we don't see Him, right? It's not like Jesus. We have a mental image of Jesus in our head. I don't know what your Jesus looks like, but we all have a Jesus, right? A mental image of Jesus uh, because he was flesh and blood. He was a man, right? He, we read about him. He got hungry and he thirsted and he struggled and, he, and, and he's very relatable. I mean, the Holy Spirit is, is different, right? We don't see him. It's, it's kind of like the air. You know what I'm saying? Like the air is around you all the time, but you're not aware of it unless it either makes you uncomfortable or disrupts your life in some way right? If it's too hot, you notice it. If it's too cold, you notice it. If it suddenly starts moving very, very quickly and tearing shingles off your roof, you notice it, right? Things like that. The air becomes very noticeable when, when it becomes either uncomfortable or disruptive. But when it's just here, we take it for granted. We don't notice it. We're very much like that with the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. He's around us. We know theologically He's around us, that He is present, that He is active, but unless He does something remarkable, we often don't um, even notice him. But here's the thing, you guys, the Holy Spirit ushers us in to some of the greatest blessings of the gospel. And if it were not for the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, we would be completely helpless to, to enter into the blessings Christ has won for us. So we're going to unpack that a little bit this morning. Our passage kind of gets into this. And so we're going to be taking a look at, at Acts chapter 18. Uh, hopefully you're there now. We're going to be starting in verse 24 and reading through the beginning of chapter 19. Okay, so beginning in verse 24. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord 
And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the water of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, the word of the Lord. All right, guys, we have an interesting pair of stories, and when you kind of read over them at first, it, it doesn't seem like they have a whole lot in common. Um, now, they did happen at, at about the same time, one over in Ephesus, one with Paul as he's traveling to Ephesus, but I think Luke put them back to back like this because there are actually some themes that tie them together. Uh, so let's talk about these. The first story is about a guy named Apollos. Now, Apollos was a native of Alexandria, uh, which means he was Egyptian. We wouldn't know that today, but Alexandria was on the northern coast of Egypt, and he arrives in Ephesus, and we find him speaking boldly in the synagogue. We're told that he is eloquent and well-learned. So, so he has a gift, right? He, he's, he's able to, to speak persuasively. He's able to string words together in a way that is engaging, and he just has a gift, right? And, and, and so he's eloquent. But not only that, he's well-learned. He, he has combined with his eloquence the hard work of, of becoming thoroughly familiar with the Scriptures so that when he arrives in the synagogue and he starts persuading and speaking, um, he, he automatically gets a hearing, even though people don't know who he is. Luke tells us that he has been instructed in the way of the Lord, which is a, a loaded phrase. Remember, during this period of time, Christians thought of themselves as being part of the way, um, which came from Jesus' statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Christians, people that were inside the church, thought of themselves as followers of the way. In fact, even in our passage, that phrase is used. Outsiders called them Christians, right? In Antioch, you had this new community of believers that were crazy diverse, Jews and Gentiles and multiple kinds of Gentiles, all living together in this community of faith, sharing resources, loving one another, sacrificing for each other. And it was so unusual that the, the outsiders in, in, in Antioch looked at them and said, well, we call them Christians, the followers of this Christ. They keep talking about Christ. They hadn't adopted that terminology for themselves yet. Uh, like we have today. They were followers of the way. So when it says that, that he was instructed in the way of the Lord, that's a loaded phrase. What it means is that he'd been instructed in the gospel. He had been instructed in, in the life, death, and burial res resurrection of Jesus. And we know that because 
Luke goes on and says very specifically that he spoke accurately the things of Jesus, which tells us he knew about Jesus. The life, death, resurrection of Jesus. He was arguing for the gospel and he was doing it accurately, but he was only baptizing or preaching the baptism of John. Baptism of John. John is a reference to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus. He was older than Jesus. He showed up on the scene ahead of him. And, and when Jesus was coming of age, John the Baptist was this guy out in the desert. He, he ate locusts and honey. He wore camel hair. And, and he was out in the desert preaching uh, a, a baptism of repentance. Um, Behold, the kingdom of God is near. Repent, the kingdom of God is near. That was, that was the essence of his message. And when people come out and hear him, um, people would respond by, by saying, I, I want to prepare my heart for the coming of the kingdom. The, the, the Messiah is near. The king is near. I want to prepare myself for the coming of the kingdom. And so John the Baptist would baptize them. But his baptism was a baptism of, of preparation, right? Repentance of preparation. The king is coming. I'm going to align my heart with this message and prepare my heart for it. And so people were, were being baptized in preparation of the, of the gospel. That's a little bit different than believer's baptism because believer's baptism or the baptism of Jesus doesn't look forward in preparation. It looks back in celebration, right? It's a baptism not in preparing for the coming of the king, but in celebration that the king has come and already won. That in his death, burial, and resurrection, we find our victory and, and that when we are baptized, we are entering into his victory, right? So one is, is a baptism of looking forward. One is a baptism of looking back. Apollos was still apparently practicing the baptism of preparation, of looking forward, which I don't really understand because if he understood Jesus came and lived and died and resurrected, why was he? I don't know. What we do know is, is that he was accurate in his teaching. He was just not complete in his knowledge. There were some things he hadn't learned yet. There were some things that had occurred, some things that had changed that no one had instructed him on. And and so even though he had faith and even though he had the Spirit, he he needed to grow in his knowledge. So when Priscilla and Aquila meet him, they take him under their wing. And they disciple him. They teach him. And Apollos responds. um, and, And so we see Apollos learning humbly. And we see him growing in his gifts mightily. Apollos becomes one of the most powerful evangelists in the early church, one of these very, very eloquent, powerful preachers that, that just had a, a way. And, and, and he ends up being sent out by the Ephesian church to be a missionary in Achaia, which is where Corinth is. That's where Priscilla and Aquila met Paul. And so we see at the end of that story, Apollos being sent out as a missionary, having been more fully instructed and in receiving um, a greater part of the revelation so that he can speak and teach accurately. The next story jumps to Paul. So while Apollos is on his way to Corinth, Paul is traveling toward Ephesus. And he's traveling through an inland valley, and while he's traveling through there, he comes across a group of disciples that he didn't know and he hadn't met. And and in conversations with them, something must have been a little bit off. Something must have been a little bit weird because he's like, you guys been baptized in the Holy Spirit? this sound familiar to you? And they were like, we've never even heard that there is such a thing as a Holy Spirit. And so as he digs in, what he finds out is, is that they had heard the message of John the Baptist. 
repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. They believed. They were baptized into the baptism of preparation. But that's all they knew. And so, Jesus, uh, so, so, so Paul was able to share with them that Jesus had come, that the Messiah had arrived, that the king had, had come and, and, and lived and died and rose again, and, and, and that the, the baptism of preparation um, was fulfilled in the coming of Christ. And so they were rebaptized. now in the name of Jesus. Now they're being baptized in the baptism of celebration because they've come to faith in Christ. They had been prepared for it. Now they received it, they believed it, and they were baptized with believer's baptism. In fact, take a look at verses 5 through 7 because it's a fairly unusual passage, right? Starting in verse 5, on hearing this, that is the gospel, the good news, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So he baptized them, right? The Greek word for baptize, baptizo, literally means to immerse. Right? So, so he took them, and once they believed in Jesus, he, he put them through the physical symbol of their faith. They were immersed. They were put underwater, which is symbolic of being united with Christ in his death. They were brought up out of the water, which is symbolic of them being united with Christ in his resurrection. Right? So this idea of, of, of the old being passed away and the new has come. Who I was is dead, but who I am in Christ is alive. Right? And so they were baptized. And then Paul did something different. He laid his hands on them. And prayed. And when he did that, the Holy Spirit fell on them, very much like he did at Pentecost. And there was a very visible, um, like turbulent expression of the gifts, right? They suddenly started speaking foreign languages and prophesying. I'm guessing everybody there had their hair kind of standing on end. One of those moments where it felt incredibly weird and everything felt perfectly right, because that's how the Spirit always works, right? It was like, well, of course this should happen, but this is weird. And so they're there, and, and, and this, this crazy thing happens. All right, then Paul leaves, <laughs> and he goes and preaches in the synagogue. So we have a very de- dramatic demonstration of the Spirit's presence and indwelling them as believers. So we have two stories with some common themes. And I want to draw some of those themes out, and there are some things I want us to look at. But before we dig in to what's really relevant to us, I want to to pause and I want to hit an important point. Um, Because there's a piece here that I think we really need to be careful to understand. Because if we don't, um, we we could really be led into some some, um, inaccurate teaching. And so I want to be a little bit teachy, uh, a little bit more than preachy for a minute, uh, because I think it's important for us to be careful with passages like this. I want to remind you that the book of Acts the book of Acts is primarily a book of history. It is not a book of theology. Now, there's theology in it, but, but Luke didn't write it to teach us theology. He wrote it to communicate to us history, right? And so when we read it, we need to be careful to make sure that we're not using Acts to set our theology. We're using our theology to interpret Acts, because the purpose of Acts is to uh, give us a historical account. So what happened here happened. It is history, but that doesn't mean that it should become normative for the Christian church. So let me unpack why. First, the events of Acts take place during a transition time in covenant history. The book of Acts takes place at a transition time in covenant history. What do I mean by that? Have you ever noticed that your Bible's divided into two parts? you got the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament's the really thick part at the beginning. 
um, with a lot of really incomprehensible stuff. And then the New Testament is the smaller part at the end, which is much more understandable. Um, the word for testament is, is the same English word as, as covenant. They mean the same thing. So what you have is the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Now, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, that big part of the Bible, is really um, all of the, the history and the promises and the activities of the Old Covenant, which was a period of time that was all about promise. God gave a covenant promise that he would send a hero, send a Messiah, send a king, send a savior. And that covenant is reiterated, that covenant of, of promise is reiterated th- several times through that period of the Old Covenant. And so the Old Covenant is, is this reiteration of the promise, the activities of the people of God as they wait for the promise, as they come to understand the promise more fully, as, as they explore more about the nature of the promise. It's a time of promise and looking forward. When Jesus came, that promise was fulfilled. And, and we have a, an inauguration of a new covenant. And in the new covenant, it's a, it's a covenant of fulfillment. We're not looking forward to promises being fulfilled. We're looking back to when the promise was fulfilled, right? That the hero has come. Now, the work's not done. The kingdom's not fully realized. There are parts of it that are still future. But, but, it's, but, the, but the central work of the new covenant has already been accomplished. The, the promises of the Old Testament were fulfilled in the, in the work and in the person of Jesus. But here's the thing, you guys. There was a transition time in human history where you had both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant existing side by side. In other words, you had people that believed the Old Covenant. They believed in the promises of God. They believed that the Messiah was coming, but they hadn't heard He had arrived. They still related to God in terms of the promise. They still related to God in terms of the Old Covenant. And during that period of time, while they were people of faith, while they were actually followers of God, they simply didn't have the full knowledge of the New Testament, of the New Covenant. So both messages were floating out there, right? Get ready, he's coming, and he's already come. Now, I think this period of time lasted about 40 years. It lasted about one generation. When, when the explosion of the gospel spread out from Jerusalem, it took about 40 years for it to spread out to all the pockets of what we call the diaspora, the, where the Jews and the proselytes were living outside of Jerusalem and, and believing in the Old Testament but hadn't heard about the events of, of the New Covenant, right? And so you've got this weird period of time where you've got some people with a certain amount of knowledge and others with, with more, and, and the gospel is spreading. So what we see here is that during this period of time, That's a unique time in human history. It's not the time today. There are aspects of the book of Acts that simply do not relate to us. There are aspects of this history that are not relevant to our personal experience because we don't live in this unique time like they did. And as a result, the Spirit was uniquely active during this period of time. Now, I don't mean more active. The Spirit is just as active today as He was back then. He's just doing his work in in more unseen ways. What I mean is he was uniquely active. In other words, he was doing things that that were more visible. He was doing things that were more obvious, more unsettling during this period of time. Because what he was doing is he was coming alongside the message and confirming it. So like when Paul was preaching to the disciples, hey, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise. And they're like, hey, we believe you. The Spirit came in with a, a, a dramatic pouring out of visible gifts as a way of saying, 
I affirm what you've believed. I affirm the message you've received. Right? There was a, a visible manifestation of signs that came in and validated the message. And so the Spirit was uniquely active. Now, why is all this important? Well, at this point, I'm probably only going to be talking to a few of you, but, but it's instructive for all of us, and it's this. There, there are sec- sections of the church that take this passage, and, and I believe they, they teach wrong things out of it. What they would teach is that this should be normative for the church, that you should believe in Jesus, go be baptized in water, and then later have somebody lay their hands on you so that you can receive the Holy Spirit. And they call it the second blessing, that you need to have an experience of the second blessing. Now, this is very common in certain Pentecostal and charismatic circles uh, where they basically say, this is the progress to Christian maturity, right? You can't progress in your Christian walk unless you get the second blessing. And as a result, you end up with this weird kind of, if you've grown up in this world, you know what I'm talking about. You end up with this kind of weird setting where you got varsity and JV Christians, right? The varsity Christians are the ones that, that have received the Spirit. And of course, that's always represented by speaking in tongues. And then you got the JV Christians who haven't quite got there yet, right? They're in the game, but they're not quite to varsity level. They're not quite at the maturity where, because they haven't spoken in tongues. And, and so people lay hands on them and keep praying over them and, and keep doing their best to help them get there. And, 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 and if you've ever been in that circle, you know that can be incredibly exhausting and, and demeaning, especially if for whatever reason you can't manifest what they measure as the gift of tongues. You guys, it's, it's not biblical. It's not accurate. Um, What they're doing is taking something that is exceptional and trying to make it normative for the church. It is true that it happened here, but it is not true that it should happen again. This is not normal. This is is, uh, unique to their their situation. Uh, In fact, let me show you a verse. This is from Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse 13. Put it up on the screen. This is the normative experience of, of the Christian. This is what Paul taught the Ephesians. Um, by the way, the Ephesians, these, these disciples were in the Ephesian church, right? It's the same exact church that he's writing to later. And this is what he says. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, that is Jesus, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So when were you sealed? When, when did you receive the Spirit? When you believed the gospel. When you heard the word of truth and, and, and believed in Jesus, you were baptized, immersed into the Spirit of God. And He sealed you. The, the seal was a sign of, of ownership and protection. The Spirit of God says, this one is mine. I am, He is baptized. We're baptized into the Spirit as the Spirit indwells us because we've believed the gospel. Right? So, so I want you to see it's simultaneous. And what, it, what that means is that your spiritual baptism actually precedes your physical baptism. Because the moment you believe the gospel, you are spiritually baptized into the Holy Spirit. He indwells you. He seals you. You are His. And it's later when you act in obedience that you're baptized by water. So, so the physical symbol, the water baptism, follows the spiritual reality. The spiritual reality is that you're baptized into the Spirit the moment you believe the gospel. And when you believe the gospel, you are then motivated by the Spirit to act in obedience and actually be physically baptized as a physical symbol of that spiritual reality. So, spiritual baptism. 
simultaneous with coming to faith in Christ. And what that means is that these events, while they are historical and actually happened, are not normative for the early church. We get in trouble when we try to take uh, uh, an account that was written as history and try to turn it into a, a definitive treatise on our theology. We don't shape our theology by the historical actions. We interpret the actions through our broader understanding of theology. All right, so if this event is unique, which it is, what does it have to do with us? All right, so there are some things that I think we can take away from this. I think there are some things that can speak into the normative experience of believers today. Um, So I'll begin with this. Obviously, these passages emphasize the importance of believers' baptism, right? That was the, the point of tension with Apollos. And, and that was one of the key elements with the disciples outside of Ephesus. Um, they, they didn't understand baptism, which reflected a lack of understanding about the gospel. And so here's the thing. If you're a believer in Jesus and you haven't been baptized, you should seriously consider it because it was obviously radically important to the New Testament church, and it is radically important to us today as well. It is an issue of obedience. It's not... The, the, the gift of the Spirit isn't dependent on it. It's not like you're missing out on some deeper element of the Christian life if you haven't been baptized. But it does mean you haven't been obedient. As a follower of Christ, we, we step into the obedience of our faith because Jesus is himself is the one who said, if you're my disciple, you should be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? And so we want to follow in obedience um, because he leads But this morning, I don't want to focus primarily on that. I want to focus on the work of the Spirit. Um, Not the crazy manifestation of the gifts, the the speaking in tongues and and the the, the prophecy, but the quiet work that surrounds that event. Because the same Spirit that was worked in this passage is at work today, and He's using the same tools. So what do I mean by that? Let me share one more verse with you, or one more passage, and then this is the passage we're going to to sit in and to wrap up. Uh, And this comes from John chapter 16. Now, at the beginning, I told you that Jesus told his disciples, it's good for you that I go away, right? Same passage. Okay, so notice how it starts out. I've got it on the screen behind me. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. If I go, I will send him, that is the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the equipper, I will send him to you. And when he comes, now here's where it gets interesting. He's telling us why he's sending us, what the activity of the Spirit is, not just in the book of Acts, but today. What will he do? He will convict the world regarding sin and righteousness and judgment. And then Jesus explains what each of those means. Concerning sin, because they don't believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So, pause. Jesus is like, I'm leaving. They're like, no, no, it's good that I'm leaving because I'm going to send the Spirit. And the Spirit is going to do something really cool. He's going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That kind of sounds like a buzzkill. You know what I'm saying? Like, like who's like, yes, convict me of sin, righteousness, and judgment all the time right? That's generally not a pleasant experience, right? We've felt conviction. We've had our weaknesses exposed. We don't like it. We're like, Holy Spirit, thanks, but no thanks. I'll take Jesus, right? He's loving. All right, 
it only feels that way because we don't understand the passage. I mean, this is an incredible passage of promise. The Holy Spirit is not a cosmic buzzkill. He, he is the one who, man, Jesus did the work to give us the greatest blessing ever known to man. Just, Jesus did the work to give us the greatest blessing ever known to man. Greater than the raise you're hoping to get. Greater than having a car that actually runs. Greater than actually getting a night's sleep because your kid sleeps through the night. Greater than the greatest blessing you can imagine. Jesus died and rose again so that you could receive the greatest blessing ever known to mankind. It is the Spirit who is enabling us to receive that blessing. It is the Spirit who is, who is leading us in and enabling us to receive what Christ has earned on our behalf. Let me unpack this as we look at this. I'm going to look at those three phrases and talk about the work of the Spirit. So first of all, the Spirit is at work convicting the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me. All right, who wants to be convicted of sin? You do. <laughs> now, I want to make a distinction. The Spirit's not at work condemning you for sin. The Spirit's not at work exposing your shame and making you feel horrible for your sin. The Spirit's not at work crushing you under the weight of your sin. He's exposing it so you can be freed from it. He's exposing it so you can see it. The Spirit is at work making you aware of your need. He's showing you your brokenness because if He doesn't show it to you, you won't see it. And if you don't see it, you will continue to hope in the wrong things, fight for the wrong things, be disappointed in the wrong things, and ultimately lead a life of despair. The Spirit is at work showing you your brokenness, that your hope can't be in your best effort, that your hope can't be in your political party, that your hope can't be in your economic or social agenda. Because there's a brokenness in you that will lead all those false hopes to disappointment. In your best efforts, in your best human systems, with your best political party, with your best economic strategies, you will build things and those things will betray you because you will build in to whatever you make the seeds of your own destruction. Because there is a brokenness in you. And as long as you are working and you can't see that, you're going to keep putting your hope in things that will fail you and disappoint you. That is the pattern of human history. Look at it. Over and over and over, people build things hoping they're going to solve this problem or fix this thing or we'll finally end poverty or we're finally going to deal with social justice. And, and there is progress, but it's like five steps forward and 20 steps back sometimes and 20 steps forward and five back. But in the end, the best things we build still fail us. The Spirit is at work to make us aware of our need. Because if we don't see our need, we'll keep putting our hope in the wrong things. In these stories that we read with Apollos, and, and the Spirit was on the scene at work long before the evangelists and the messengers showed up, right? Before Priscilla and Aquila, before Paul, the Spirit was already at work preparing people 
Think about it like planting seeds. At this point, what this means is that the Spirit is tilling the soil of our hard hearts so that we can actually receive the the good news. Like a seed, it can be planted in our heart. We can actually receive it. We won't receive it unless we know we need it. So this work of the Spirit is to awaken within us our awareness of the need. Is that always pleasant? No. Does He show us things about us that we sometimes don't want to see? Yes. Because none of us want to see our need. None of us want to feel helpless. None of us want to feel like like we can't save ourselves. That's a really horrible feeling. But until we enter into that, until the Spirit opens our eyes to it, we're not going to know our need. And if we don't know our need, we won't receive the blessing. The Spirit prepares the the soil of the heart. When Priscilla and Aquila took Apollos, he received the truth because his heart had been prepared. When, When Paul met with the disciples and told them about Jesus, they received the news because their hearts had been prepared. They believed because the Spirit was there ahead of time, preparing the soil of their heart to receive the truth. The Spirit is continually at work preparing hearts to receive the gospel. Continually. That's why at certain points when Paul's traveling, the Spirit is like, hey, don't go to Macedonia this time. I want you to go down here. And Paul's like, all right. And then later he's like, I'll go down here. No, no, now I want you to go to Macedonia. Why? Because the Spirit was leading Paul to where he was already at work. See, Paul wasn't working for God. Paul was working out what the Spirit was already doing. He was joining and, and, and just following what the Spirit was already active in doing. And the Spirit was leading him to where he needed to be. You guys, the Spirit is still active today in the same exact way. The Spirit is on mission to see God glorified in sinners turned to saints through the work of Jesus. People far from God being brought near. People who are enemies of God, made friends and adopted as children of God. People that are driven by false hopes and false gods, set free into a glorious hope of the kingdom. And what that means is that if you're here this morning, It's because he brought you here. You're like, no, Steve, my friend invited me. Yeah, no, that's fine. The Spirit works in all kinds of weird ways. Even your weird friends, right? He's always at work, you guys. If you're here, it's not by accident. If you're a believer, it's because he tilled the soil of your heart that you might receive the truth. It is only by the grace of God through the work of the Spirit that you can even come to faith in Christ. The Spirit prepared your heart. He prepares the way for the gospel, and then He empowers the gospel. Take a look at the second phrase in our our, uh, passage. The Spirit is at work convicting the world concerning righteousness. Because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. I want you to notice, the Spirit's not at work showing you your lack of righteousness. That's not what He's saying. He's not at work showing you how you fall short of the standard of righteousness. He's already shown you your sin, right? That's the first part of the work. He's not highlighting your righteousness. This isn't even about you. He's showing you Christ's righteousness. He's showing you God's solution to your need. He is highlighting the beauty of Jesus. He's showing you that there is an alien righteousness that can be yours By faith, he is bringing home the invitation of the gospel so that you can have this blessing. 
He's saying, leave behind your lack of righteousness, and man, you can have Christ's, and Christ stands in the presence of God as your advocate. He stands in your place. He stands covering you with His righteousness. It is the Spirit that brings new life. It is the Spirit that awakens us to this beautiful invitation. You know, one of the, one of the powerful metaphors in the New Testament is this idea of us being dead. Scripture tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Um, that's pretty strong language, right? Because a corpse, what can a corpse do for itself? Not much. Does a corpse need resuscitation? No. A corpse needs resurrection. A corpse needs a power outside of itself to do for it what it cannot do. It needs to be born again. And only the Spirit can breathe life where there is none. But He does it in a very specific way. He does it through the gospel. It is the message of Jesus that unleashes the power of the Spirit. Listen to me. The Spirit brings life from death, but He does it in a specific way, through the message of the gospel. It is the message of Jesus that unleashes the power of of the Spirit, right? Apollos. Apollos had been prepared by the Spirit. He was ready to grow. He was ready to move forward, but he could not until a messenger delivered him a message. And then hearing that truth, he was able to believe that truth and grow into the blessing of that truth. The disciples were ready, but they were waiting Their hearts had been prepared, but they could not grow into what they had not heard. They needed a messenger to come and deliver the message. You know, everything in our salvation is from the Spirit. It's His work, right? A corpse doesn't need resuscitation. It needs resurrection. It's the Spirit that prepares our heart. It's the Spirit that breathes life into our soul. It's the Spirit who who makes us alive and, and unites us with Christ and covers us with Christ's righteousness. It is the Spirit's work. We can't take any credit for it. But God has chosen to tie the power of the Spirit to the activity of man. He has chosen to partner with the messenger. He chooses to work when we choose to speak. The Spirit was present with Apollos. The Spirit was present with the disciples. He was preparing their heart. But he did not deliver the message. He sent someone else to do that. These guys were not able to grow in the blessing that God had won for them until they heard the message. And they couldn't hear the message until the messenger brought it. I've talked to believers who have a hard time sharing their faith. And... um, I've heard this line, I, I can't even tell you how many times, you know, if God, you know, here's the thing, if God wants them to hear it, they'll hear it, right? I mean, God's sovereign, and if he wants to, why, you know, it makes me uncomfortable, it's going to feel awkward, you know, it's really cool to be spiritual in our culture, it's not really cool to be narrow in your spirituality, 
right? So it's really cool to be spiritually minded and open and talk about love and grace. It's a lot more challenging when you start talking about Jesus as being the way, the truth, and the life. Yeah, that's kind of exclusive, right? That's a challenge, and that's an offense. And so some people shy away from actually talking about their faith because it makes them uncomfortable. And they use this line of reasoning. If God wants them to be saved, he'll do it. Yeah, he did it. He sent you. The Spirit of God empowers the message of God. And the message of the gospel has been entrusted to you, the messenger. We deliver the message. Now, the Spirit is the only one that can empower the message. Right? We deliver the message, but we're not responsible for the results of the message. We can't take responsibility for how people receive the message. We have to be faithful in delivering the message, but it's the Spirit who takes responsibility for actually enlivening and empowering that message and, and bringing genuine spiritual growth out of it. He's the one who brings conviction. He's the one who brings faith. He's the one who, who leads people to want what Jesus is offering. But listen, you guys. He does it through the message. And he's empowered us to deliver it. And he doesn't circumvent his own plan. This is his plan. This is how he's determined to do it. So in our passage, the Spirit is at work. But the messengers still needed to deliver the message. The Spirit tilled the soil, He gave life, he, he allowed the seed to be planted, and He gave it growth when it was. And then He's the one who brings a new life of purpose into the life of that new believer. Take a look at this final phrase. The Spirit is at work bringing conviction to the world concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. The Spirit brings conviction a judgment. Pay, again, close attention. Whose judgment? Yours? Is the Spirit making you feel judged? Is the, is the Spirit bringing you this sense of ominous, like, I'm going to be destroyed by God? No. He's making you aware. He's bringing in this, this growing, He's allowing you to see that the ruler of this world has been judged. He's not bringing conviction of your judgment. He's not condemning you or seeking to make you feel unworthy. He, he's actually awakening you to hope. Awakening your soul to the reality that the enemy has been judged and defeated. Everything that is wrong in the world won't stay wrong. Everything that's broken is not going to stay broken. And there is a better hope than your political agenda. There is a better hope than your economic renewal. There is a better hope than your social activism. There's, I'm not saying those things are bad, but there is a better hope. Your hope isn't in those things. Your hope is in a new kingdom led by the true king. Your hope is in the revolution of the kingdom of God usurping the kingdom of man. This means the Spirit fills us as He fills our vision with this new kingdom, He fills our hearts with a new passion and a new purpose in line with it. The Spirit gives your life meaning by moving your heart on mission. 
to grow in the blessing of what Jesus has done and to share that blessing with others. Remember, he is the spirit of mission, right? We first meet the Holy Spirit in the very first chapter of the Bible when he is moving over the face of the waters in creation. He's still moving in recreation. He is still moving as he awakens us to the reality of what is and what is to come. But we are so easily distracted. When I was a brand new believer, I, I became a believer in Dubuque, Iowa, and, and um, wanted to go home on, on, on man, I don't remember if it was Christmas, Easter break, I don't remember. It was one of those breaks, and I decided I just needed to see California again. And so I got a, a Greyhound bus trip from Dubuque, Iowa to San Diego. That was interesting. And um, it was a long trip. And I remember when we were passing through Las Vegas, it was, a, it was a unique experience because we pulled in at about 4 a.m. It was still pitch dark. And I remember we, we were kind of on a hill over the city. It was, it was close enough that you can see it right on the strip. And, and I looked down, and man, the strip was just lit up. I mean, if you've ever been to Las Vegas, you know, man, it's just, it's just lights and bright lights and flashing lights and moving lights and images. And, and you can hear all the buzzing and the whistling and the dinging. And, the, and, and it's just this, this big, I mean, it's overwhelming, this, this, all of this stuff going on, right? And then the sun started to come up. And I remember, man, I was like 17, and it really struck me. The sun was coming up, and it was beautiful. Like the skies turned, the, the colors of the, of the clouds were this dramatic pink, and, 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 and then when the sun came up, the sky was just this stark blue with white clouds and the mountains, and it was beautiful. And in the light of the sun, the strip looked a lot different. It didn't look very appealing. It actually looked kind of dingy and dirty and, and almost like a scar on this beautiful landscape. And that really struck me as a, you know, like a young guy. I just remember like that struck me like there's, there's something real here. There's something I need to learn. I think this describes us a lot of the time, you guys. We, we get so distracted by this world by the bright and shiny things, by, by the whizzing and the whirring and the bells and the whistles and the next promotion and the, and the little bit more money and a little bit nicer car and a little bit bigger family and a little bit more luxury. and We get so distracted. We lose sight of the true beauty. We get so consumed with the kingdom of man that we lose sight of the beauty of the kingdom of God. That's why we need the Spirit to continually be enlightening our eyes that the ruler of this world has been judged. That all the empty hopes of this place, man, they're not our hopes. We're not enslaved to this rat race, this need to achieve and to measure our pile of bright and shiny things to somebody else's pile of bright and shiny things. We have a kingdom that lasts, that is glorious. We need the Spirit of God to continually be enlightening our eyes. That we will see what is real. That our hearts will be lit up with the right hopes. That our, that our motivations will be in line with the true mission of why we're here and what actually lasts and what is worth the investment of our lives. What this means is you will never be fully alive. You will never be fully joyful. You will never be fully engaged with life 
until your eyes are open and you know what's worth living for. And you know what's investing your energy and your time and your creativity and your money and, and, and all of it into. The most successful people I know, they're successful in, in, because they're hard workers and, and they're creative and, and, and they invest themselves. But the most successful people I know know why they're here. It's not just to get more stuff. It's not just to get ahead. It's because there's a kingdom coming and God has given them a unique set of gifts to be harnessed and used for that kingdom, to be a blessing to others, to go more deeply into the message of the gospel and share that message with others. God has given you gifts. When he gave you the spirit, he gave you a a unique set of spiritual gifts. And he will uniquely direct your steps. And he will give you unique opportunities to, to live out and to share the gospel. But if your eyes are not being enlightened, you will not be sensitive to where he's leading. And if your eyes are distracted by the buzzing and whirring and the flashing lights of this world, you're going to walk right by the true treasure. And you're not going to esteem it. And I don't know fully how it works. But I know there are people that are dependent on you to be the messenger of truth. There are people that the Spirit has sent you to be the messenger. And their blessing is dependent on your faithfulness. We need the Spirit of God to awaken within us a conviction of our sin, our our delight in the righteousness of Christ, and, and, and hearts alive to the mission of the gospel. That we might live out, experience, and share the true blessings. You guys, I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. Hmm. Ask the Spirit to enlighten our eyes, right? Jesus said, I'm leaving so that you can get something better. He's here. Let's pray. Spirit, we thank you that you are present this morning, that you indwell every believer in this room, that you are active in the minds and the hearts of everyone present. Father, I thank you that you have given us the gift of your Spirit in the same way you have given us the gift of your Son. And that While Jesus was the hero of our story, he was the one who bore the brunt of our shame and took our place of guilt that we might stand with him in his place of righteousness. It is the work of the Spirit that enables us to experience that blessing. So, Father, I thank you for the gift and the movement, the enlightenment, the presence of love and of grace that your Spirit brings into our lives. Make us more sensitive. Make our hearts more responsive. Spirit, I pray that you will awaken within us a deep awareness of how profoundly we have been loved and how that frees us to move out profoundly in love toward others. 
that we might not be people who have received the blessing, but people who are walking in it, experiencing it, and sharing it. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.